Hi, I'm Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England. I've spent my career at the intersection of technology, ethics, and human stories. Now I lead the amazing team here at Genomics England. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. And that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. And there are some myths out there. So we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G word. It's my pleasure to be joined on the GWAD today by Baroness Nicola Blackwood, who has been an MP, was created a life peer in 2019, is a member of the Lord's Science and Technology Select Committee, and as the Chair of Genomics England, is in a full spirit of transparency, my boss. So I'm going to be asking all the all the tough questions and being really abrasive, um, or potentially not. No, no, no change there then, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you are Baroness Blackwood of North Oxford. Firstly, how did you bagsy North Oxford? Pretty nice area. No one had taken it so far. Did you grow up there? Tell us a little bit about um, your background and how you got to uh, be Baroness of North Oxford. Well, actually, um, my parents met in the Radcliffe Infirmary back when that was a hospital. Their eyes locked over an operating (laughs) table when my dad was, I don't think he was very good at surgery. He didn't become a surgeon. He became a physician. But my mum obviously was bowled over and, and that was that they got married and and a few years later um, I came along. We didn't stay in Oxford, Uh, we went off and and lived elsewhere. I actually ended up living in Oxford from about the age of 14 and you know that that it was my home ever since and I didn't, I I never wanted to be a politician, I was desperate to be a musician, I wanted to be the, the most moving opera singer that ever there was. I was completely obsessed from a very young age, I was a very strange child. Um, However, I grew up in a family of medics, um, really vocational. Every Christmas, we would be in the wards, doing Christmas in the wards, not at home. You know, I didn't see my dad most nights until, you know, nine o'clock at night because he was busy doing his rounds. So the, the kind of message at home was always one of service and that you should do something with your life, which helped people and, and change the world around you. And with the best will in the world, I didn't feel like my singing was quite good enough to be doing that <laughs> for anyone in the world. And so I was I was really frustrated when I was about, you know, 24, 25, because I was thinking I was desperately pursuing this musical career and not really feeling like I was contributing very much. And then I I came across politics and I ended up feeling as though this was a way in which I could contribute. And through various accidental routes, including becoming uh, the candidate for Oxford Western Abingdon, which should have been an unwinnable seat, I became the MP there. And it was the best job in the world, representing my own constituency, where I knew every street, every shop, every business, you could do something which gave back. And so, you know, I gradually um, developed an expertise in science and life sciences. And, you know, bit by bit, you could do some things that help people. And so that's how I kind of navigated my way through to the job that I have now. But, you know, the best thing in the world is that through those different opportunities that came along by chance and by design, um, I end up with the job that I have today, which is Chair of Genomics England, which couldn't I couldn't have a better job because I no doubt we'll discuss later. I also have a rare disease and to be doing something which helps people with rare diseases is for me an absolute pleasure and a joy. 
because there are too many people in this country who are still looking for a diagnosis and we're doing something to help that. Absolutely. And while each individual disease is very rare, collectively, they're actually not that rare. Let's go back momentarily to opera. So you were a pretty serious musician, though, because you also played the flute. If you were going to recommend to listeners who are thinking like opera, pa, that's not for me. Um, what what opera should they listen to to um, convince them that opera is for them? Well, I think a really accessible opera and one that I listened to when I was very young, but then probably sort of misty-eyed romantic was Labberwem. I completely loved it. Um, but also Mira Callas singing Diva. I mean, I defy you and your heart not to melt when you listen to that um, aria. But, you know, um, perhaps my recommendation is a little bit coloured by my own preferences. <laughs> <laughs> OK, we'll see if we can put the links in the uh, in the show notes. And just like Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman, I generally uh, start sobbing about halfway through uh, La Traviata. <laughs> That's right. Well, Enough. my second Enough. date with my husband was at, was at La Traviata. So, you know, I, I, I won't deny that recommendation. I think I think you can um, you can guarantee good outcomes from La Traviata. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So um, a, a rich world of music, uh, very modestly phrased, accidentally winning an unwinnable seat, becoming an MP. You then became the Lord's Minister in the Department of Health and Social Care which has also been described by various people, I think, including you, as a fantastic job. What do you actually do as the Lord's Minister in the Department of Health and Social Care? So in, in the House of Commons, you have several health ministers and they cover separate portfolios. So you'll have a minister who covers social care and a minister who covers life sciences and a minister who covers um, mental health. But in the House of Lords, you have one health minister who is responsible for answering to the House of Lords on literally every single area of health policy. So you are the minister for everything from um, estates and what's happening to hospitals, to social care, to mental health, to everything. So you need to understand the entire breadth of health policy. And you also take every piece of legislation through the House of Lords. So you become technically knowledgeable about all the different mechanisms that are happening in the health service, which is intellectually fairly challenging. Um, and also you have to remember that the House of Lords is full of you know, quite a few experts, whether they're legal experts or um, they're people who've worked in the health service um, or palliative care services, mental health services. So when you stand up um, to you know represent the government on these different issues, um, you might be you know speaking to someone who literally wrote the book on the issue that they're challenging you on. So you have to be pretty careful <laughs> and respectful um, in the way you um, deal with that. So I mean, I loved, I loved. Um, that job. Um, but then when I went back to the department, the role which I had in that department was I was the life sciences minister. And so I worked to make sure that we were doing everything we could uh, in government to ensure a strong and flourishing life sciences sector in the UK. And, you know, we have an extraordinarily strong life sciences sector all the way from our science base where we have some of the best scientists in particular areas such as genomics but also in other areas such as um, data and AI and, and it's globally competitive in that all the way through to our regulatory system and, and right through to where we are actually you know spinning off companies and delivering therapeutics and we've seen that just um, yesterday with the fantastic public listing of Oxford Nanopore, which, I mean, it was a fantastic success with the stock rising 40% on, on listing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I saw that um, in my Twitter feed and thought, 
God, I wish I didn't have any conflicts of interest. I should have uh, invested this morning. That's an amazing success for her. Well, we should be proud at Genomics England that, you know, we're, we're partnering with them. So <laughs> we, should, we should feel at the warm glow. Exactly. I know it's great, very close to your home patch, right? Um, just, uh, is it south of Oxford, that big, uh, that big science park? It's wonderful wandering around there, seeing all of the, to some extent, it's sort of the best of British tinkering and science and so on. People with all these microfluidics things kind of uh, tinkering with them, making them a bit better. Just like wandering around the equivalent outside Cambridge, the Sanger Centre and all of the uh, activity there and so on. Um, so cool, very exciting. So an incredibly broad portfolio across that. As you say, a lot of expertise in the Lords. It, it strikes me actually, there, I, I'm going to get the term wrong, but there's like the Lords temporal and the Lords spiritual or something. Cause like there's sort of bishops and people still in the House of Lords, right? That's true. Um, there are there are bishops in, in the Lords. Not all bishops sit in the Lords. Um, only some bishops have the right to sit in the Lords and to vote. And I, I have to say, many of those who do ask very appropriate and challenging questions, and they play a, a you know quite a strong role there. I was going to say, the, the area that we operate in, there are a lot of interesting ethical questions. So interesting to, to have some of those views. We should think about getting a group of religious leaders onto the pod. Anyway, I digress. And so from that, you, among other things, have come and joined us at Genomics England as, as the chair. You're also on the board of the Alan Turing Institute, I think? I am, yes. So this this interface of science, technology, innovation, very clearly your, your home turf now. You mentioned earlier your own experience with rare disease. Could you maybe just give us a sense of what your experience has been? And I may be overly... Uh, sort of pop psychology linking these things, but then how that plays for you into this whole life sciences, technology, innovation space that you're you're so sort of passionate and knowledgeable about? Uh, I, I don't think it's pop psychology. I mean, partly I grew up in a medical household, but also I was sick from a young age. So um, I have a genetic condition, uh, the Stanloff syndrome, which causes a bunch of secondary conditions which are in the public domain. You can Google it. <laughs> the Sun has you know, reported on it in your detail. But, you know, for many, many years, I didn't know what was causing all those symptoms. And so I, I started getting sick before I was seven. And I was in and out of hospital with different symptoms that didn't seem to be connected. And it called, you know, I missed school. Um, sometimes I was so sick that it, you know, it was really serious. Um, <clears throat> we went to different doctors and clinicians. I got diagnosed with all sorts of different things that were obviously wrong because when they treated me according to those diagnoses, I actually got worse. Mm. Um, you know, the tests were, you know, made me ill as well. And so I would I would go for some quite invasive tests. At one point, they thought I had a form of cancer and I had bone marrow biopsies, Ow. which was really painful. But also it was very, you know, it's very stressful. When I was 19, I had fever for, you know, uh, I think it was nine or 12 weeks. And they decided that this was an indication of cancer. And so for all that time, I thought, oh, maybe I had cancer. And it wasn't, of course. Um, and so, you know, the, the ups and downs of, of that, it's called a diagnostic odyssey which lasted for me for 30 years, was incredibly stressful. Um, and it wasn't just stressful for me. It was for my entire family because my parents had to care for me during that time. For about uh, two years, I, I, I couldn't be in school or, or studying at all. For about four years, I had to be homeschooled because I just, every time I spent a, a reasonable period, it, actually in school, I would just get sick again. And so they just 
they put in the most extraordinary amount of effort to just make sure that I got at least GCSEs and A-levels so I could get to the next level. And, you know, I owe them everything for doing that. But it also affected my wider, you know, my siblings and everybody, um, because everybody had to put sacrifice in order to make sure that I survived. And then eventually, it was actually after I became an MP and I learned all these coping mechanisms to survive when I got sick and everything, but I also hid it because I didn't want anyone in my work environment to think I was weak or think that I couldn't cope or think I couldn't do a job. So I spent all my time when I was well at work and then I'd get sick and I'd go away and hide away. So I had these two lives, two masks, and then eventually I couldn't hide because I got so sick and I actually collapsed in front of the political editor of The Sun. And And so this all became public and then I managed to get a referral to a clinician for one of the things which was wrong with me which was very very severe headaches and migraines and he said I know what's wrong with you you've got Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and he referred me to a specialist that he knew who was actually one of the world leading specialists in this and in 20 minutes I was diagnosed after 30 years and um, then various tests followed and within a year I was you know sorted out on a regime that made me better and it took it like a little bit of time to stabilize but the experience of that after 30 years was it, it was just shocking I mean I I mean I can't pretend like when I had the initial test that actually confirmed that this wasn't all in my head I just like lay on that you do a tilt table test I just lay on that table like with tears coming down my face because I was like this isn't just like one doctor had told me it's anxiety and you need to go to a psychiatrist and it wasn't um and I I now am well I'm in control I know what the problem is if there are any you know I I have a lifelong condition but it is manageable because I have a diagnosis which tells me what medication I need what management I need and which clinicians can help me and on top of that you know mentally I know that I can understand the nature of what has been happening to me and what happened to me and all those around me for 30 years and also I don't have to hide so you know I made a decision to be open about it because for so long I felt like I had to pretend and if I didn't pretend I would be judged as being not worthy or not able to cope or one of the people who should be left on the side and I think one of the problems we have in this country is that we have significant stigma for those who have disabilities or long-term illnesses we don't have stigma against those who get sick with a with a time limit on it and get better we have significant stigma for those who live with illness and that has to end because those who live with illness they're incredibly strong they overcome huge amounts but they also have a massive contribution to make and they understand things about our country which many many others do not and my experience is not the blueprint for everyone else you know people living with you know rare disease and chronic illness everybody has a different experience but i would like to see that by speaking openly it makes it possible for everybody else to feel like they can and they don't have to hide because i hear it from so many people yeah and firstly thank you for sharing that as an incredibly powerful story and to your point about everyone has a different experience i had a very simple but very great phrase recently which is if you meet one person with a rare disease you've met one person with a rare disease exactly um you know and this idea that we can kind of generalize about the experience or what people need and so on i think is something that you know we need to completely unpack you talked about the power of getting a diagnosis and then subsequently 
the really positive impact of then having a sort of treatment plan. What is it about, even, even if you're not sure at that point what the long-term treatment or even uh, cure might be, what is it about getting a diagnosis that changes um, that whole journey or is such a pivotal point on that journey? So firstly, it's the first thing is it's knowing that you're not mad because if you if you don't have a clear set of um, symptoms or you have a or you have a cluster of symptoms, um, then there is a tendency within the clinical community to just put you on the side and tell you that a, you know a good part of what's wrong with you is you, rather than to keep looking, um, and so you end up feeling you end up feeling abandoned. And so once you have the diagnosis, firstly you feel okay. Now I know what it is. Now I can actually you know place that and understand so there's a there's a there's a firstly there's a mental health benefit to understanding what it is which is really important um and for those around you because when you have to describe to people what's wrong for a long time if you can't say this is what's wrong with me there's no placement for you so if you say to someone oh i have cancer or i have asthma or oh, i have diabetes everybody understands if you say i have this undefined illness which prevents me from doing x y or z it's very difficult for those around you to understand. So the diagnosis is important for getting support, understanding for yourself, for your family, but also within the wider community and your workplace. That's the first thing. The second thing is within our um, health system, in terms of care pathways, care pathways for undiagnosed conditions are not really in existence. We're working harder to make sure that they do exist, but you know, my goodness, it makes a massive difference when the health system knows what is wrong with you and they know which clinicians to send you to. They can, you can be treated symptomatically. So I was treated for migraine, I was treated for asthma. But once you have a kind of unifying diagnosis, your health is so much better coordinated. You know, you will get much better outcomes and much more stable healthcare. And so that is why it matters. You're not going to necessarily have a you know, silver bullet therapeutic, but even if it's just management, you will probably, they will probably know what the best management is for the diagnosis once you have the diagnosis. Does that make sense? No, it makes a ton of sense. Um, and I think there is that, there's that power. I hadn't really thought about this before, but I think you're exactly right. Having a label, so to speak, or a, or a specific condition means that people know what to do with you. Um, like one of our kids is dyslexic. I mean, it's a completely different kettle of fish. But um, as soon as he kind of has the badge dyslexic, then people are like, oh, okay, you can get extra time in exams. We've got these sort of um, colored reading glasses that help the words not jump around on the page. And kind of, we know what to do about it. It's not just that someone is like stupid or disruptive, whatever, actually there are things we can do. And even, even if it's not a kind of magic pill that you take that cures something, some sort of long-term management um, becomes that much easier. In your case, it seems like, thankfully, there are ways of managing that long-term um, if not kind of flicking the switch for a cure. I'd love to talk a little bit about these relationships between clinical care, but also the research that is going on for many of these conditions around how best to manage them or treat them, or um, in some cases, look for a cure. One of the things we work hard on at Genomics England is trying to bring these worlds together. Why is that so important? And I guess, particularly from a human perspective, how can patients, participants and researchers get closer to each other? And, and what are the benefits of trying to enable that? 
Well, I think this is really important because one of the points I didn't make just now and I was wishing I had made was the other thing that you get with a diagnosis is you can be linked into the community of other people who have conditions like yours. It may be like those who have specific conditions like yours or similar conditions to yours. And not only does that provide peer support, which is so important, especially if there isn't a therapeutic for your condition or if there's not a very good one. It links you into the possibility of participating in clinical trials or just following the research. And, you know, that you you can't have that if you don't have a diagnosis, obviously. And so I think I think that is critical. And obviously, at Genomics England, we do a huge amount of that through the participants panel and the work that we do at the GSIPs which is really important. But I think more work uh, does need to be done. And the NIHR, I know, are very keen that a huge amount of um, improvement will come through what they are calling uh, the clinical trials portal, which they're hoping might get um, some funding in the spending review. And that will not only improve communication out to participants and potential patients, but also accelerate, you know, actual uptake for clinical trials. So that I think we should hope, you know, goes forward in some form or another. And just to, I guess, double click a tiny bit on the the GSIPs, which some listeners may not be familiar with. So this is Genomics England Clinical Interpretation Partnerships. And effectively, this is a group of academics who are working in a particular field um, or potentially also uh, biotech or pharma researchers as well like sort of musculoskeletal conditions or intellectual disability or neurodegenerative disease or whatever, and who have access to data um, of people who've been patients and and research participants to, I guess, both find kind of broad scale insights about biology and and the body and so on, but also potentially make diagnoses for individuals on this de-identified data that we can then sort of re-identify and feed back to, to clinicians. One of the areas that sometimes causes uh, controversy in this field is around the access by uh, startups or biotech companies or pharma companies to these de-identified data sets for the purposes of uh, of research or identifying people for clinical trials. This may be a fatuous question, but like, why why is that controversial? How can we manage those relationships in a sort of fair and and sort of trustworthy way? And how are you thinking about that agenda in your role as chair of uh, Genomics England? So I think the reason people worry about the access to data is because, firstly, they worry that it's not really de-identified and that there's some way that it can be identified. That's the first thing. Secondly, um, they worry about the security of the data and where it's going to go. And thirdly, they worry about what it will be used for and who will use it. So um, on the first, um, I, I think after I've answered, I think I'd like you to give a technical answer on how we make sure that it's really de-identified and how we make sure that that happens. Because we do have very good systems for making sure that that data is de-identified. And so I am assured as as chair that our data at Genomics England is de-identified. And so people do not have to have concerns about that. Secondly, on the question about cybersecurity um, and making sure that our data is, is protected from, you know, unwanted access which we have not intended 
we have worked incredibly hard to make sure that we have secured the systems, we have gone through and looked for, you know, any weaknesses in our data sets and our, um, you know, tech tech platform. And so, you know, that I know is something that you've taken on, Chris, as a kind of personal priority and you're working on a day-to-day basis um, as, a, as a priority because the only people who should get access to this data are the people who we um, intentionally give access to it um, th- and, and the people who have gone through our ethics uh, and um, you know proper person processes. And so then the last question is, why are those uh, people having access uh, to the data and for what you know good reasons? And so people who I speak to, who are people with rare diseases or people with cancers, um, or many other people, you know, who on a day-to-day basis, you know, have had a family member who has, has been ill or something, they are all really keen that their data is shared with either researchers up and down this country or even with companies that they know have the potential to either develop um, a new diagnostic, which would have helped someone like me to be diagnosed in one or two years instead of in 30 years, which would have been amazing, not just for me, but also for my poor sister and my brothers who had to live with me being sick all the time and disrupting our house, or to be developing not just therapeutics that would help uh, manage conditions, but potentially what we're seeing now is curative therapeutics. And so those are the sort of ways to access, you know, those are the sort of um, people who we want to be accessing the data. But in order to make sure that we uh, reassure people um, who are perhaps uncertain about that access, we want to make sure that we put in place uh, reassuring um, sort of structures around the access to the data so that, that people can be reassured. So that's making sure that we have, uh, we don't kind of send the data anywhere, we have it in a, in a library um, and the access is um, is there's a process to it. So uh, we put it through ethics and we check that there's a good reason to access the data and that there's a good benefit to come out of it. And once you've done that, we know that we're making good use of this extraordinary resource that we have of, I think it's the biggest whole genome data set of cancer anywhere in the world in order to make sure that we will have earlier diagnosis of data, we will have shorter time to getting treatment to patients with cancer, which is really important right now when we have one of the longest times to diagnosis for cancer that we've had in ages because of the backlog that the NHS is is facing. And we will get better treatments for cancer. And all of that could come by having research on this data set, this valuable data set we have, which people have contributed to because they believe in the research principle and and promise that we have with this genomics um, work that we're doing at Genomics England. Absolutely. <laughs> you suggested that I should give a, a technical explanation of de-identification, which I will. I'm going, to, I'm going to start with a very untechnical analogy, though, which is the data sets that we hold on, on behalf of the country, are we refer to it as the National Genomic Reference Library. And so that's kind of metaphor number one is it's, it's not a lending library. It's not a bookshop. We're not sort of selling copies of the data that people can take away in a plastic bag. It's one of those sort of reference libraries where you have to put on the white gloves and you have to get permission to come in and you only get a pencil and so on and you can look at your kind of manuscript or whatever it is. That's that's a really important foundational principle. We're not selling data. We're giving access to that data to researchers who can come in, the data stays where it is, and then the researchers can take away their insights, but they can't take away the data. And the way that we ensure that it's de-identified is partly by just not putting some of the information into the research environment, like your name or your address and so on. And partly by, it's a mix of hashing, which is 
taking something like your NHS number and then completely recreating it as a separate code, which is like a one-way process and encryption and anonymization and so on. So that all of the data that is in there about an individual can't be linked together to identify who that individual is. Yeah, a very a very robust uh, set of processes that get audited and so on um, by people like the Information Commissioner's Office and ISO accreditation and all of that good stuff. So Nicola, you mentioned in passing earlier that we're in the middle of a spending review. If anyone senior from Treasury or Number Ten is listening, you're you're great. We love you. Uh, please fund us. What's the what's the big picture as you're you know putting in for this funding over the next three to five years? What's the big picture that Genomics England is working on, and why is this so important? Well. We are obviously working incredibly hard to make sure that whole genome sequencing for rare disease and cancer patients, uh, which is a world first, by the way, in clinical care, becomes a standard of care everywhere, everywhere in England, and that any patient who needs it can get access to that. So that's the first thing. But we also want to deliver some really challenging programs which stretch the capacity and the potential of UK genomics, because we really are, and I know that everybody says you know, we're world beating, but in genomics, we genuinely are. We, we are ahead of almost every other comparative country. And I think that, you know, not just for the sake of NHS patients, but also, you know, for the sake of global genomics and healthcare, um, it's important that we keep stretching ourselves and um, keep pushing ahead with the, the scientific capability and capacity that we have, because if we don't, it's almost as though we're squandering our capability. So I really hope that when um, the Chancellor is looking at his priorities, he looks at this and he sees this as an investment which is important. And so the areas where I think it would be so uh, valuable to invest are firstly on what we're calling Cancer 2.0 which is bringing uh, new science and tech um, to bear on um, accelerating and personalizing uh, treatment. And what that would do is it would reduce waiting times by bringing in you know, faster genomic diagnosis and targeted improvements. And that means reducing those waiting times from weeks to days and giving you much more actionable and faster cost-effective uh, diagnosis. So that would be hugely exciting. And it's particularly important right now where we've got these really long waiting lists for cancer. The second area is newborn sequencing which has an immediate benefit for sick babies who will get a diagnosis much, obviously much earlier because, you know, many of those patients like me take years to be diagnosed and, you know, you'd have better outcomes for those patients. There's a potential of 3,000 babies per year to benefit if that's rolled out nationally. You'd obviously see also the potential for that to be a, a unique research asset. And the benefit from that would be that you would have a sort of a, a therapeutic innovation platform where you could, you know, really accelerate the discovery of, of diagnoses and treatments for some of the, the most really terrible um, illnesses, which, which kill so many of our uh, rare disease children in this country uh, every year and globally. And, and finally, um, something that's really close uh, to my heart, which I think was one of the first things we discussed uh, when I came on board with you, Chris, uh, is what we're calling our Diverse Data Initiative, which is um, targeted sequencing of 35,000 diverse participants by 2425. Because one of the things which is really unacceptable, actually, is that we have, you know, really un underrepresented, uh, unrepresentative 
data sets in genomics globally and that has to be put right and so by putting this right and by making genomic data sets more representative we will have a reduction in health inequalities better patient outcomes for those who are from underrepresented communities and we of course improve the research and we sustain the position of the UK as a global leader in genomics and these are all crucially important things I think for us to be doing at Genomics England but also in the NHS um, because these are the ways in which we make healthcare better, we make diagnostics better, we make therapeutics better but all of this is contingent on us making sure that we have the capacity in the NHS to deliver. So if there's one final thing that I would say we would need the Chancellor to think about, it's about how we provide the right number of genetic counsellors, the right number of the right amount of genomics training for not just specialist clinicians, but amongst the wider NHS community. So whether it's GPs or you know just general cancer clinicians, so that they know when it's appropriate to order a sequence and that you know every patient who needs it would be sequenced because we would then see a real transformation of you know not just the quality of care and the quality of outcomes and the potential research uh, benefits for the NHS, uh, but we would also, I think, see a real step change in the productivity of the NHS. That's uh, that's quite the to-do list. It's uh, um, so. In fact, we're we're speaking on the the second anniversary of me joining Genomics England as uh, chief executive, and so I've, as always, on these kind of dates, been reflecting on uh, the last couple of years, all the things that have changed and all of the things that I guess are um, you know eternal and don't change in terms of our our focus and priorities and and trust and so on. The program that you've uh, just outlined over the next uh, two or three years, I think, does indeed give us a pretty ambitious uh, to-do list, but I'm excited about uh, what we can achieve if we uh, if we make some good progress on that. Nicola, thank you so much for making time to come on the pod and for sharing so powerfully your own journey as well as your vision for genomics. Really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. And also, I have complete confidence in you, Chris. It's, it's easily within your grasp. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to the G word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series and appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G Word.